From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, the black family under slavery and after. Down to Barack and Michelle and Sasha and Malia. Historian Brenda Stevenson will explain. Her new book on the enslaved black family is titled, What Sorrows Labor in My Parents' Breast? But first, the right-wing takeover of Shasta County. Sasha Abramsky will report in a minute. Shasta County, California, north of San Francisco, is a pretty place, but right-wing extremists have taken over the Board of Supervisors and some local school boards there. They've driven out public health workers and pushed to make the county what they call a Second Amendment sanctuary, and they're calling it a blueprint for the rest of the nation. Sasha Abramsky has been spending time in Shasta County to understand what happened there and what it means for the rest of us. Sasha, of course, writes regularly for The Nation. His work has also appeared in The Atlantic, The Village Voice, and Rolling Stone. He's written many books, including The American Way of Poverty and The House of 20,000 Books. And his new report in The Nation is titled The Takeover of Shasta County. We reached him today at home in Sacramento. Sasha Abramsky, welcome back. Thank you, John. How are you? I'm good. Great to have you. You open your report with a member of the county supervisors who narrowly survived a recall effort last year, Mary Rickert. You say the right calls her a communist. Is she a communist? <laughs> no, Mary Rickert is someone who voted for Donald Trump twice. She's she's a rancher. She has three ranches um, that she shares with her husband and they're dotted around Shasta County. She's self-defined conservative. She owns guns. She um, voted for Trump, though wouldn't vote for him again. She is as far from a communist as you could possibly get. She's called a communist and she's called a rhino, a Republican in name only, mainly because she wanted to abide by public health mandates during the COVID crisis when the rest of the, um, or much of the rest of the county and certainly these insurgent right-wing movements wanted basically to go to war with Sacramento over COVID restrictions. Um, but no, despite the hate mail, despite the death threats, despite everything that comes her way, <laughs> she's not a communist. The biggest town in Shasta County is Redding. You've spent a lot of time there lately. What's Redding like? It's actually a very lovely town. Um, if you drive north on the I-5, it's the last city of any substance before you get to the Oregon border. So you drive up the Central Valley, you see all the orchards in bloom. You get to Reading, it's a town of about 90,000 people. And off to the northeast, you've got Mount Shasta, which is this just epic mountain about um, 80 miles north of Reading. It's got a cutesy downtown. It's got some lovely restaurants. It's always been a very conservative town, and it's now become more conservative. But the town itself, you know, it's very pleasant to walk around, have a nice meal in. You visited a barber shop in a tiny town outside of Reading called Cottonwood. Tell us about that. There's a barber there called Woody Clendenin, and he's kind of a character. He set up in the Obama presidency what was called the Cottonwood Militia. And he says it's a branch of the statewide militia. I'm not sure whether they're formal membership ties, but it's a group of men and women who basically train in um, military tactics and train in the usage of guns and so on. Um, Clendenin himself refused to close his barbershop throughout the pandemic. He ran this pandemic. Um, he, ra he ran this barbershop. Um, with the sort of increasing sense that it was a counter community, that people would go there if they didn't like mask mandates or they didn't like lockdowns or they didn't like the direction that Sacramento was going in. 
And so his walls are plastered with right-wing political slogans. There are guns hanging on the walls. Uh, there are various insults to liberals, to individuals, and to political and to politicians. Um, but Clendenin himself, you know, I went in there several times and I talked to him at length. And he's a deeply, deeply conservative individual. Um, on the other hand, he was very generous with his time. You know, I sat with him. He knew who I was. He knew I was a reporter. We sat for several hours twice and, um, you know, told me his worldview. And his worldview is very, very different from my worldview. You want to tell us about the price list for haircuts at this place? Yeah, this was sort of amusing. It was, you know, it was this series of prices. You know, Clendenin basically gives buzz cuts. I think he may do other things, but it's mainly, you know, a razor. Um, and he had this price list and it was, I think, 11 or $12 for veterans and $15 for a family deal. You know, he had all these things, $100 for liberals, 105 or whatever it was for vaccinated people. Um, I may have the numbers a bit wrong, but that was the gist of it. <laughs> It's his worldview that's now governing, governing Shasta. In the 2016 election, Donald Trump carried Shasta County, winning 64%. But that was not very different from hundreds of other rural counties all across the country. And it didn't lead to a far-right takeover of those counties. So Trump's election doesn't seem to have been the turning point for Shasta County. What was well, everyone I talked to, left wing, right wing, people who liked what was happening, people who hated what was happening, everyone who I talked to said the turning point was COVID. So Trump sort of softens up the political process. He coarsens it. He um, you know, brings in a sort of authoritarian voice. Social media exacerbates that because of the echo chamber and the fact that people sort of hide behind anonymity and think it's OK to cast around threats online. But the thing that really coalesces these movements in Shasta was lockdowns and the fact that there was this impression that there was a one-size-fits-all solution being imposed on these very rural counties by Gavin Newsom's administration in Sacramento. And it triggers this enormous backlash. So you have the lockdown of businesses, you have the mask mandates, you have schools shutting down, and suddenly you have hundreds of people turning up unmasked, unsocially distanced, at these border supervisor meetings, the border supervisors for the first few months of the pandemic was in person. And then eventually, as the numbers started spiking, it went online. So you had this sort of surreal situation where you'd have the border supervisors in person sort of cordoned off. They were all sort of separated off with plexiglass. They had uh, masks on. They were socially distanced. And then on the other side of the plexiglass, you had this sort of unsocially spaced, unmasked, flamboyantly non-conforming with the rules around COVID group of conservatives. And they would turn up at every meeting and they would brack and they would heckle and they would threaten and they would make these sort of blood curdling speeches about, you know, armed insurrection. And over the course of a year or two, that movement got more and more and more right wing. And it got more and more outraged by any kind of COVID restriction and any kind of public health restriction or any kind of public health mandate or any kind of public health recommendation. There are some liberals in Shasta County. What did they do in response to all this crazy threatening stuff? Yeah, there, there are stuff? a lot of liberals. I mean, if, if you think that about two thirds of the population voted for Trump, well, it's a population of 180,000 people. So that means, you know, about one third of Shasta County doesn't in any way, shape or form sympathize with this. They're organizing. There, there, there are some really interesting journalists up there, a woman called Donnie Chamberlain, who runs this 
online news site called a news cafe and several others they're organizing they're monitoring they're publicizing what's going on uh there's a website called shasta i think it's called shasta county thought you should know or thought you should know shasta county and it monitors hate mail it monitors you know some of the postings on social media some of the rants on talk radio and so on and in actual fact one of the four very very conservative board of supervisors members at the moment is himself facing a recall the peak of the COVID lockdown, spring and summer 2020, that was also the summer of the Black Lives Matter protests nationally. Things got pretty scary in Shasta County. In Shasta, you had a lot of armed, essentially vigilantes, militia members, bikers, and others who basically took to the streets with weapons to patrol against the possibility that Black Lives Matters protesters would come in and cause havoc. And there were some Black Lives Matters protests. They weren't very large and they weren't destructive, but there were some Black Lives Matters protests in Reading and elsewhere. They were met with armed groups of individuals who basically were telling them, you better get out of town if you know what's good for you. Okay, back to COVID. If you didn't get vaccinated, you were much more likely to die from COVID. What was the death rate from COVID in Shasta County and how did it compare with uh, the rest of the state? Even though Shasta is a small, sparsely populated county, its death rate per 100,000 or per 10,000 was actually significantly higher than the statewide death rate. So, you know, the numbers sort of camouflage it a bit because they're a bit dry. But what they basically break down to is three people in Shasta County died for every two people of a similar sized population within California. So that's a significant difference. Yeah. We haven't said much about Trump. Of course, Trump lost the election in November 2020. He got only 34% of the vote in California. He did get 65% in Shasta County. What was the reaction of his supporters in Shasta County in November 2020? More, more people voted for Trump. A higher percentage voted for Trump in Shasta in 2020 than in 2016, which tells you something about the direction that Shasta was going. And after Trump lost the election, over the next year and a half, two years, it doubled down on this idea that the election had been stolen, that there'd been this sort of organized stab in the back by bureaucracies intent on sabotaging Trump. And one of the ways that this newly empowered hard right board of supervisors has manifested its power is it banned Dominion voting machines. Well, it's the only county in the country, as far as I know, which actually sort of literally banned Dominion voting with no other mechanism to vote in place. You can't you can't count votes by hand only in California. It's too complicated. There are too many things on the ballot and there are state rules against it. You have to have at least a partial machine backup. So Dominion is now no longer part of the equation in Shasta. Uh, the problem with that is it's going to cost them millions and millions of dollars to try and get some kind of other ad hoc system in place in time for the bunch of elections next year, the primaries, the general and so on. And if you talk to some of these hard right individuals in Shasta, and I spent a lot of time talking to the hard right one after another after another, they'll tell you that January 6th was a false flag operation or that January 6th wasn't a riot at all. It was just democratic freedom of expression or that the police let them into the Capitol or that Nancy Pelosi let them into the Capitol. <laughs> the one person who didn't have anything to do with it was Donald J. Trump. <laughs> a little more than a year after Trump lost the election, the far right got a recall election for the county supervisors in Shasta County, which was held on February 1st, 2022. What was the campaign like? 
the campaign itself was very vitriolic. I mean, you you had stuff on social media that was just extremely offensive and extremely threatening. It was also funded in part, not wholly, but in part by this very right wing billionaire out of Connecticut, a guy called Robert Anselmo. And Anselmo had a personal beef with the Shasta Board of Supervisors because he'd opened a vineyard. He'd opened it without proper permitting. He'd built certain things on the vineyard, a chapel and a few other things. And the county board of supervisors had basically said he had to shut it down. And he did shut it down, but he sort of bore a grudge. And so when the opportunity arose, he decided that he would fund to the tune of many hundreds of thousands of dollars this recall campaign against three of the board of supervisors members. And he did. And it gave this right wing group the momentum to gather signatures, to put out adverts, to launch a pretty sophisticated social media campaign. Um, um, in the end, only one of the three got recalled, a man called Leonard Moti, and he'd been the police chief in Reading. He'd been on the Board of Supervisors for quite a while. He was currently chair of the Board of Supervisors, and he was particularly hated by the Conservatives because of things like pushing the um, Board of Supervisors meetings into a virtual format. And then when there were in-person formats, putting in place all these protections and the plexiglasses and only letting certain numbers of people in to get public comment and limiting the time they could get public comment. And he became a sort of target, not just in Shasta, but globally for the anti-lockdown anti, um, movement. And so Moti was getting hate mail and you know death threats from pretty much all over the world. When the election actually happened, he was the one who got recalled. The other two narrowly survived the recall, but I think 56% of the voters in his district voted to recall him. So he's replaced by this guy called Tim Garman, who's pretty right-wing, though not as right-wing as some of the other members who ended up coming in afterwards. And the board shifts to the right, and it starts embracing these you know, really hardline positions against mask mandates, against public health, against the elections infrastructure, against anybody who would propose cooperating with Sacramento on Sacramento's gun control laws. And it just spirals and it's still spiraling. So here we are in you know the middle of 2023 and we're in the middle of the aftermath of that recall election. There's also talk about secession from the state of California. It's called the State of Jefferson Movement. There's nothing unique to Shasta County around that. Most Northern California counties, the sparsely populated, the conservative counties that feel like they're underrepresented in liberal California, most of them have in the last several years expressed support for some kind of secessionist movement. It's aspirational. It doesn't mean that you know tomorrow you're going to end up with counties seceding. It means they have these non-binding votes or they have non-binding referenda and a majority come out in favor of joining this non-existent state called Jefferson. Um, in their mind's eye, the way it would look is you'd have a series of conservative counties from northern california northern and eastern california seceding along with a series of counties from eastern oregon and possibly from northern nevada and they would join this mega state that either would be part of idaho or would sort of replicate what idaho was like politically it's not going to happen it's you know again it's this sort of symbol politics but yes many of the new board of supervisors have expressed sympathy with this notion of Jeffersonia, of the state of Jefferson, because they're so marginalized within state politics in California. So what do we make of all this? You quote a 74-year-old libertarian-leaning military veteran who ran the local talk radio station. He told you that 
hotheads have always come and gone in American politics, that COVID and Trump magnified all of the community's divides and made people angrier and coarser and cruder, but things eventually would quiet down again. That's just the way it works in American politics. You quote him saying, in the long run, things will settle down again. They always do, close quote. I wonder if you agree with that. Well, I didn't really. And this 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 man was called Karl Bott, and he was quite conservative. But I thought he was, you know, a very decent human being. And I I enjoyed, you know, he spent a lot of time talking with me. I enjoyed the conversations with him. I thought he was a very humane individual. He ran this radio station that certainly was right wing, and certainly hosted some at times extremely unsavory individuals. Um, but I think he himself really did. I don't think it was a facade. I think he himself kind of yearned for a calmer, more genteel politics. Um, but do I think he's right that things calm down in the end? Yeah, if you go years and years and years down the road, it's entirely possible that people will look back at the period from 2020 to 2023 and think, oh, you know, my God, what were we thinking? This was so extreme. It was so irrational. But the long term is a long way away. I mean, is it possible, though, that in between now and then, there'll be a whole bunch of chaos and a whole bunch of people getting hurt? by what's happening in Shasta right now. And you suggest in the nation that maybe the right-wing takeover of Shasta County could have been avoided if Governor Gavin Newsom had handled the COVID mandates differently. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, right from the get-go, I, I understood the need for the mandates. I understood the need for doing things in a different way in the face of an unprecedented public health emergency. I didn't think that everything Gavin Newsom did was particularly sensible. I didn't think it at the beginning of the pandemic, and I still don't think it. I didn't think shutting down schools for you know the prolonged period of time made any sense at all. I thought the damage it did to children was horrendous, and I thought that there ought to have been flexibility to put in place the kind of thing we did in the 1919 Spanish flu pandemic when schools around the country hosted classes out in the open. They took over parks. They took over um, school playgrounds. They took over parking lots. You know, if there's a will, there's a way. Um, but I do think more generally there ought to have been more flexibility between how you respond to a public health crisis like this in a crowded, densely populated urban environment like L.A. or, you know, Oakland or San Francisco or Sacramento and how you respond to a crisis like that in a sparsely populated rural area. I think basically allowed people who were already suspicious of it and already suspicious of the idea of government and already suspicious of the idea of expertise. It gave them a foothold and allowed them to peddle a lot of conspiracy theories and to gain traction doing so. One last thing. What was it like for you to be up there in Chasta talking to these violent, armed, far-right-wing people? I'm sure they know that you support uh, public health and Black Lives Matter and gay rights. You don't really look like a Christian nationalist. You weren't armed. Uh, how did you go over up there? Early in the Trump presidency, I'd done a lot of reporting um, in, the, in the primary season. And then Trump got elected. And I psychologically just I just it made me feel so ill. And um, I didn't want to spend all my time trying to understand the hows and the whys of people voted for Trump. I knew I knew it was something that just made me feel dirty. But, you know, with a bit more distance, I, you know, I, I do think it's fascinating to get inside other people's heads and to see what's motivating them and to tell their stories. And so I went up to Shasta and I was very upfront with people. You know, I, I didn't 
didn't say, hey, I'm writing for a really right wing magazine. Why don't you talk to me? I said, I'm writing for the Nation magazine. I assume, you know, people people have access to the Internet. They can Google. I said, I'm writing for the Nation magazine. I, I told some of them I didn't agree with what they were saying and that but I wanted to hear their stories. You know, I, explain this to me. And one of the things that's really depressed me about the last few years is there's been this inability to accept the fact of plurality in this country. And, you know, you're either with us or you're against us. And and the result is people are sort of siloing. And democracy doesn't really work when everybody silos. You've got to have an ability to, you know, talk to each other and to have interplay in some ways. And, um, you know, I think as a journalist, it makes your story more powerful if you can hear the voices of different people. Sasha Abramsky wrote about the far-right takeover of Shasta County for The Nation. You can read his piece at thenation.com. It's in-depth, long-form reporting at its best. Sasha, thanks for going to Shasta County, and thanks for talking with us today. It's always a pleasure, John. Thanks so much. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The legacy of the slave family haunts the status of black people in America today. For that history, we turn to Brenda Stevenson. She's the Hillary Rodham Clinton Chair of Women's History at Oxford and the Nickel Family Endowed Chair of History at UCLA. She's best known for the prize-winning book, The Contested Murder of Latasha Harlins, Justice, Gender, and the Origins of the L.A. Riots. We talked about that here. Her new book is What Sorrows Labor in My Parents' Breast, A History of the Enslaved Black Family. One more thing. 
President Biden named her to serve on the Civil Rights Cold Case Review Board, which examines unsolved murders of African-Americans between 1940 and 1979. She testified before the Senate Homeland Security Committee in 2020 and was then confirmed by voice vote in the Senate. We reached her today in Oxford, England. Brenda Stevenson, welcome back. Thank you so much, John. It's great to be back. Well, let's talk first about the Civil Rights Cold Case Review Board. What can you tell us about that work? Well, that work is just really taking off right now. It takes a long time to set up a committee to get the staffing. And so what we'll be looking at um, initially are cases that have already been digitized by the National Archives. There are more than 100. We'll have our researchers, we'll have our chief of staff, our attorney. And are all of these cases ones that were investigated by the FBI originally? They were investiga investigated, um, both some of them on a state level, some of them on a local level, but most of them uh, are being were investigated by um, the FBI, the Department of Justice. Your new book on the enslaved Black family includes dozens of wonderful photos and illustrations. The first one is not of enslaved people. It's the official Obama family portrait, Barack and Michelle and Sasha and Malia in 2011, looking fabulous. A family to emulate, if not envy, you write. Let's talk about that picture and what we know about the previous generation behind it. I wanted to start with an important Black family. I wanted people to see what was a landmark in terms of our ideas about Black family in the United States. And what better family than that of the first family? And Obama's own family background includes a lot of what has been regarded by a lot of mainstream social science as pathologies. Exactly. We look at President Obama's family of birth and we look at his mother and his father. And his father was married to someone else at the time that he married, purportedly married um, Obama's mother. And he, of course, was an absentee father for most of President Obama's young life. His grandparents raised him um, to a certain extent. And he also, his mother remarried um, too. So he had stepfather and step siblings. Uh, there's nothing wrong with any of that, of course, except for people have pointed that out as being very negative. His mother sometimes was on federal assistance. And so that hasn't kept him from becoming the first Black president of the United States and having a beautiful family with, a, as I say, double ivied wife, you know, a daughter who's now graduated from Harvard and another who just graduated from USC and so on, all their wonderful accomplishments. And the next photo in your book is from 1974. A black woman named Linda Taylor made infamous by Ronald Reagan as the, quote, welfare queen. Yes, that notion of Black women as being welfare queens, as being lazy, as not caring about their children, as not taking care of their children, um, has been used by social scientists, by politicians, by, you know, the everyday person on the street, by the ways in which people interact with Black children in schools um, and also in our policing institutions, for example, to harm Black people. And so it's important that we, you know, we look at that myth and see where it really comes from, uh, what validity there is with it, um, et cetera. 
So your approach is to examine the ways that enslaved Africans and their descendants defined kinship themselves, the ways they experienced it, the way they valued it, the way they maintained it. You start your story in 1850 with a woman enslaved in Virginia named Bethany Vaney. What did you learn about her and, and how did you learn it? Bethany Vini is just one of many, many people who wrote their stories or who had some assistance in writing their stories. And what's captured in these stories is the importance of family. And these people live through all kinds of difficulties. Family members are sold away. Family members are killed. They're sold away. You know, um, they don't have appropriate food or clothing or, or any of those kinds of things they can never think that they would live together with the family or with the husband for the remainder of their lives, um, et cetera. But family still is at the core and the center for this woman, Bethany Vini, she's able to, to get away and she's able to claim her freedom. She takes her son with her. Her son unfortunately dies. But after the Civil War, she goes back to Virginia and she gathers up the remnants of her family and she takes them to the Northeast and they live out the remainder of their lives in a new space that's not defined by enslavement for them and in which they can begin to function as a real family connected to one another, living close to one another, visiting, helping, loving, et cetera. And so I did want to start with a family where there was hardship, but there also was some success at the end. And then you turn to a very different figure, a man named Abdul Rahman Ibrahima Ibn Sori. Amazing name and an amazing person. <laughs> Tell us about him. Well, he was an Islamic man who had been captured and enslaved, and he worked very hard to gain his freedom. He was enslaved for several years, had remarried in the United States to an enslaved woman. They had several children. He never stopped trying to gain his freedom and the freedom for his family. And eventually, he is able to gain his freedom with, you know, very miraculous conditions. And he goes back to, to Africa um, with some of them, and he lives out this dream. So this is another story of a person who just never gave up on having his family free. To understand how enslaved people thought about their own families, we need to understand marriage in the family in West Central Africa at the time of the Atlantic slave trade, a big topic. But tell us briefly what we need to know about the African background of this. Well, one of the things that I think is really important to understand is that while there are many, many, many ethnicities and, and different language groups that are fed into the Atlantic slave trade that end up in what becomes the United States of America. There are certain clusters of these people who come from, you know, places like the Senegambia region, who come from Congo, Angola, who come from um, what is now Nigeria, um, Cameroon, Guinea, etc. And these people differ substantially in terms of their culture. Some are Islamic in faith. Some of them are have already been Christianized. Some of them have, of course, traditional African religions as well. And they also have different kinds of marital styles. Some are polygamous, some are you know, monogamous, some are, are patrilineal, some are matrilineal. There's a great diversity. But among every single group, there is an emphasis on family relations, on kinship, 
on the importance how you are defined by your family. Um, that is not lost in the middle passage, and that's not lost in the seasoning process. Oftentimes people say Black people have no culture. They lost all their culture, you know, um, in the slave trade. They lost all their culture in middle passage. There were so many different groups, nothing stuck. That is absolutely not true. And one of the things that absolutely stuck was the value no matter how expressed in terms of day-to-day life, but the value of kinship, the value of family, and how that was how one defined oneself. Of course, family life for enslaved people was often devastating, especially in that period when the slave economy shifted from the Upper South to the Lower South and Southwest in the decades uh, before the Civil War. Hundreds of thousands of people lost husbands, wives, sons, and daughters as they were sold. Maybe the worst part was women forced to leave their children. You have some stories of acts of desperation by some who hoped to save their families. From the colonial period, you know, we find over and over and over again in what were called fugitive slave advertisements, the attempts by enslaved people, men, as well as women, to escape with their families. Um, as families are formed, Um, that is people marry and have children, we see specifically this one ran away with her infant. This one ran away to get back to his wife. This one ran away, you know, in order to try to get back to Jamaica because they have family in Jamaica. These kinds of efforts of resistance speak not only to the absolute desire to be reconnected with family and to protect family, but also how families are just across the Atlantic world. I mean, there are people who have, you know, siblings who are in Jamaica or in Barbados, for example, they lose complete connection with them at the time of the American Revolution. We have people in Florida who have uh, have families in Cuba, of course. It speaks not only to this desire for family members to be together, but also how flung across the world these families were. And of course, there's always, as Phyllis Wheatley alludes to uh, in the title to this book, the family that one never regains, which is the family in Africa. The last of your stories of the Black family within and outside of slavery is about a man named Bob Samuels, guy with an amazing memory who told the incredible story of his family in 1936, uh, we need to talk first of all about where you found the story of Bob Samuels and how come we have that story today? Well, I found that story in the WPA narratives. And of course, the WPA narratives were collected in the 1930s for generations and generations of scholars. Historians would not use these narratives because they spoke to the last generations of enslaved people. These were elderly people. So many decades had passed before, you know, people were trying to get these stories out of them. They come as a part of the relief for the Great Depression. These people were employed to 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 really record American history, um, to give these writers and these, you know, teachers, et cetera, who were out of work during the Great Depression a job. I was reading through them again because I try to read them, all of them, every few years. But I had known about Bob Samuels for a while. His story seemed so incredible. I was reluctant to use it. And I actually spoke to other historians about it. And they said, oh, no, this can't be. This, This doesn't make any sense. But the more and more, as I got to the end of the book, and I had read so many accounts uh, from all different kinds of sources, I thought, I'm going to give this source a chance. I'm going to put it out there 
and I am going to see what people think about it because it is incredible, but also surviving enslavement is incredible. The dedication of the book is for the African girl sold from Virginia to South Carolina and all her kin. Well, I'm one of those kin. Mm. And this is my mother's story that she passed to me, that her grandmother passed to her, not about a person in her her grandmother's line, but in her father's line. I would ask my mother who grew up on what used to be a plantation in South Carolina, you know, what do you know about a family? This is as a small child. She says there was an African girl sold from Virginia to South Carolina. And that's where some of your family come from. And so, you know, this was so many generations ago that this story traveled across my family. We only had that little bit of it. But Bob Samuels talks about how his mother and his grandmother would tell him repeatedly their story. So what is this incredible story? It is that his ancestors were with Hernando de Soto in the 16th century. Mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling. And and they came over as part of de Soto's effort to find gold, gold that had been found in Mexico, the, the precious metals that had been found in Peru. And he had been assigned as the governor of Cuba. But before he wanted to do that, he wanted to say, I I need to go back one more time and try to find this gold. And he took this whole cluster of people with them, hundreds and hundreds of people with him. And some of them were of African descent. And Bob Samuels believed that two of these people were his ancestors. And indeed, let me just interrupt here and say, I like many people thought, how could how could this actually be right? But you have read here in your footnotes, you've been reading like the Journal of Southeast Archaeology about DeSoto's travels looking for gold in Arkansas, which is where Bob Samuels lived and was telling the story to the WPA project in 1936. He knew the rivers, he knew the valleys, he knew the whole landscape of where DeSoto had traveled. And not only in Arkansas, but also in Louisiana and in Texas and in Florida, his grandmother and then his mother. These people were not people who had been educated. You know, I mean, they didn't read a geography book. They didn't read a history book about Hernando de Soto. This came from their experiences and what had been passed down orally and with these documents from generation to generation to generation. So de Soto, of course, dies in the in the lower south of the United States. We're not sure exactly where he does die. His forces and all the people working for him scatter. And then Bob's family, I believe they, they go back to Cuba and then from there back to Spain. But generations later, they return to Cuba and then they come up with the maps that their ancestors have passed down to them and start again, this quest to find this gold. Wrong place, wrong time. Yet again, they are enslaved. And then his mother is born and he's born, et cetera. And it just, the story passes on and on and on to his And he family. can name all of these people. All of these he can answers. name all of these people. He absolutely can. And um, he can point it, you know, if you showed him a map, he could point it out on the map. And he just kept telling it over and over and over again until finally somebody, I guess the WPA people were looking for people who had, you know, stories of their families. And this woman heard about him. And it's an amazing story. Finally, your title, 
What Sorrows Labor in My Parents' Breast? Tell us about that. This is a line from Phyllis Wheatley poem, written at the end of the 18th century. You know, oftentimes Phyllis Wheatley, who is a just a phenomenal person, but she's often sort of thought of as an assimilationist, and she's also thought of as a person who became so embedded in colonial British or American culture that she didn't have very much reference to her her home. Well, she, of course, she was enslaved as a child, as a small child, and then she was taught, you know, English and various other, uh, you know, Western languages, etc. But we do see few glimpses of her memory of her past, knowing that she had a family. I mean, that's one of the few things that she kept, that she had a family, and she knew that her family loved her and that they would be mourning her. So she says, what sorrows labor in my parents' breasts? She doesn't know, but she knows that it is sorrowful, that it is an enormous loss for them and an enormous loss for her. So despite centuries of slavery and systematized inequality, Black people were able to create family ties that fostered humanity, assured survival, and undergirded post-emancipation progress across the generations. Brenda Stevenson's new book is What Sorrows Labor in My Parents' Breast, A History of the Enslaved Black Family. Brenda, thanks for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John, for this opportunity. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.